Hello, Jeff family. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 22. Uh, in this text, we really see how, um, how one person, as long as they're faithful in proclaiming the word of God and, uh, and faithful in ministering to the people, they're just bold for the Lord, that the Lord uh, can use a person uh, mightily in a very unique way. And, you know, sometimes we think that our culture, as secular as it is, uh, it sometimes makes it seem as though evangelism is impossible or that there's nothing that we can do about it. It's just like a uphill battle. But we're reminded, especially in the book of Acts, that, you know, a secular culture is just a normal state of the world. Uh, the world is a place that is against the Lord. Ever since the the fall, um, there has been multiple religions uh, that has come, and multitudes of religions just trying to uh, soothe that that desire of wanting something beyond without actually bowing to the knee of the one true God. Um, in this particular context, we know in Acts chapter 17, this is where Paul is at, in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, and um, he's he's witnessing to all of these people, and in particular in Athens, he sees this, all of these multitude of these false gods, and he, he's broken for them, and he goes and he starts uh, witnessing to them. Uh, and uh, he, he he debates uh, the philosophers of his day, and um, the people were intrigued by spiritual things, but they, again, did not want to know the one true God. It even says that uh, they're intrigued uh, because they think that they're just he, he's just inventing some new God until he demands that these people bow their knee to the one true God. That's chapter 17, and when we get to chapter 18, Paul here is witnessing to people in a very secular culture. This is Corinth. Um, verse 1 said, after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. The Corinth that we know from First and Second Corinthians is that this is a very debauched place. I mean, Paul went from the place where there's the highest philosophical type debates in Athens uh, to the worldly philosophies, and now he's in Corinth, which is just a sinful place. Not that different from the world that we live in today. It's a place that it's just filled with sexual debauchery and sexual sin. And as he's there, he is not afraid. And I want to encourage you as we go through this particular passage that you do not be afraid, that you're bold in declaring the word of the, the word of the living God. Um, and, and as you do so, the Lord will bless it. And, and just to, and don't be intimidated by the world. The world is just a place that hates God, right? All the way even back to Cain and Abel, God told them to give him a sacrifice. Uh, Cain. Uh, I was a, uh, you know, he's a farmer of, of plants and, uh, and Abel was the only one that had, uh, had, you know, livestock and, um, Cain, what he should have done is not just offer some terrible sacrifice, but, you know, trade what he had to Abel so he could get the sacrifice as appropriate. And God was not pleased with the sacrifice and what uh, Cain did was that he essentially killed his own brother, he sacrificed his own brother and that was what caused him to be essentially the first idol worshiper. He didn't want to follow what God has demanded. He killed his own brother. He, he offered a sacrifice that was not pleasing to the Lord. And this is what results in just a lifetime in, a, in, in this whole world, this whole history of just idol worship and pagan worship. So this is, again, not new. And when Paul is here, it's just, it should be no different for us when we're here today. Uh, we are just witnessing to those that are always against and antagonistic to the Lord. So, let's go to chapter 18. This is now verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with, with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. So this is, again, kind of God's providence in using uh, circumstance to bring people to different places, and they get to hear the gospel. And in this place, Aquila and uh, Priscilla, This is uh, these names should be familiar to you because they've shown up in, in the New Testament epistles as well. These are faithful individuals uh, in the church, and uh, this is really how uh, they came to know Paul. Verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every day and trying to persuade Jews and Greek. So it's fascinating here in, in that uh, Paul here in Corinth with these individuals, he's tent making. And this is how, you know, at the time, you know, missionaries didn't, may not have support, support churches. Uh, and at this point in Paul's ministry, it's very difficult. He's alone. He's, he's not planting all of these churches. And now he's at this place where he finds himself having to work and, and you know, devoting less time to prayer and, and studying God's word. But he still was able to balance that with reasoning with people in the synagogue every Sabbath. This was this, this faithful commitment in sharing the gospel. He, he did once a week and every Sabbath. He was just trying to persuade both the Jews and the Greeks. And is in that devotion, you know, he's working hard throughout the week. And But when it's time, the seventh day, the Sabbath day, he went to go and try to win people to Christ. Verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word Psalm testifying to the Jews that Jesus was a Christ. And this is a really cool because there's a, obviously there's some sort of time jump here, but Silas and Timothy has arrived and now they've given uh, Paul some sort of su financial support. Uh, the church is there that, he, that uh, knew about Paul and his situation. They were able to give him support so he can devote himself completely to the word. And he's telling Christ the Jews to uh, the, who that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Again, this is just the a very unique circumstance in First and Second Corinthians. He even said that he did not try to burden the church; that he was tent making. That's kind of what's going on here. He, Paul, wasn't he wasn't a lover of money. He wasn't there trying to get rich by being a pastor. The only thing he cared about was that people knew Jesus Christ, and he went. He and but but when he was given opportunity to 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 give up a secular job, he took it so that he could use more time. Uh, devoting completely to studying of God's word and then witnessing to those that are Jews. Now understand that this is actually why we hire pastors in the church. Uh, it's advantageous whenever a church has pastors that are devoted to teaching them God's word. In our church, we have three pastors, and uh, we're you know, there's uh, even a few other elders in training. They're also in seminary now. They're going to become pastors, and it is uh, a complete is a privilege for me and it's a blessing. Uh, for me to have, to serve along all these other pastors, but ultimately all pastors are given to a church by the Lord. Um, this isn't to puff me up or any other pastor, just the reality of circumstance. When we get to uh, serve you in, uh, by teaching you God's word, like things like this podcast or Sunday school or Friday nights or, or Sunday uh, morning, these are all ways in which we can um, you know, we're, we're devoting time so that you can be fed the Word of God so you can mature and grow in Christ's likeness. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't pastors that that have a secular job. I've known a few people that are like that when I was in seminary and even now. Uh, but it's just harder for them to be able to balance that. Uh, not impossible, it's just harder. And that's why there's advantage for, for full-time pastors who spend their time devoting themselves to studying God's Word so that we can 
teach you faithfully from God's word so we can help you think through things biblically so we can even know about the the arguments of the world so we can give you uh, a biblical answer to the things and questions of the world so that's why it's good for uh, for people to have full-time pastors is because it gives uh, them advantage for for their own soul to have someone that's constantly studying God's word and teaching you how to think uh, and study God's word for yourself so that's what happened to Paul here. He finally getting a, a help from Silas and Timothy, and now he's completely devoted to, to, to teaching and evangelism. Verse 6, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook off, shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own hands. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So these are these Jews that, you know, they said they resisted and blasphemed. So they, they were, again, saying things about Jesus Christ that wasn't true. Essentially, they're blaspheming the God that they claimed to worship. You know, Jesus commanded them that, you know, that if this town doesn't accept you, just dust off your feet. And in a lot of ways, this is just like a, 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 a visual uh, manifestation of saying that God is, uh, that, you, that your heart is hardened to the Lord and that God has basically given you over to your sin. And these, their sin here was unbelief. And Paul said that he, is, he, he did his job. He did what he was supposed to do. This is from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 13, where God warns Ezekiel that, you know, your job is to go and tell people about, uh, warn people about the death, uh, the destruction that has come. And if you don't do it, that's on you. But if you do do it and they still not to, and they still refuse to listen, then the blood is on their hands. And that's what Paul is alluding to here. He's telling the Jewish people that the blood is on their own hands on their own heads and he's clean and he, he did all that he was supposed to do he was a faithful apostle and prophet to them verse 7 then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue Crispus the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all the household and many of the Corinthians when they heard were believing and were being baptized so it's, it's fascinating that there's these different individuals that are coming into the church that are being saved and Crispus here he's a leader of a synagogue so he's he's a big deal it's kind of like if if uh, right now the the president of the Mormon temples like if we witness to him he gets saved that's like the equivalent here it's like the big name person uh, denying their false religion and believing in the one true Christ his whole family believed, and then they were all baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in the night of by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And this is, again, very fascinating. God gave uh, assurance to Paul. I'm sure ministry is hard. Dealing with difficult uh, rejection from your own people is difficult. But he, uh, Paul, gets this vision from the Lord that ensures him to not be afraid, that he's with him. And, you know, this should sound familiar because Matthew 28 tells us that, you know, the, um, the Great Commission tells people that God is with us uh, um, and he will never leave us. He'll be with us always. And that's what he's just like a reminder and encouragement to Paul that God will help us. And that's how we need to feel as well. You know, at the end, I think that Luke wrote this intentionally for not only to record what happened in history, but just you know, Paul's telling him what happened. And, and he's writing this down so the future church will be encouraged and to not be afraid. Um, and, and it's time and day like this where it's so easy to be afraid. I encourage you by the word of living God to not be afraid. Don't worry about what the world thinks. Don't worry about um, what's going to happen to you. Just be as faithful as you can as a Christian. Know who your God is and preach and teach him to those that are in your life. And it's because of that, this vision that Paul gets, he, he, he gets strengthened. And look at verse 
11, he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. You know, Paul was discouraged. His own people rejected him. So he goes to another place, Gentiles, people who are probably pagan worshipers, and he's trying to win them to Christ. And he's discouraged seeing all those rejections, but, but the Lord tells him to not be afraid and that he'll be with them. He, he stays there for a year and a half. So that's just faithfulness, and there's a, a gift from the Lord for him to go and witness, because this is how the church of Corinth came to be. He was just there, he's evangelizing, teaching and teaching and teaching, evangelizing, evangelizing, building up leaders in the church, and the result of that, the, the Lord used him mightily because of his faithfulness. Verse 12, while Gallio was a proconsul of Archaea, the Jews was one, with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And what law? I mean, because this is the Roman law? The Romans didn't really have that. Mainly because at the time, the Romans believed that the Christianity was kind of like a sect of Judaism. So they didn't say like, oh, well, that's, you guys are official religion. Christianity here is an official religion. They're just a uh, your Jewish sect. And what the Jews meant when they said that was like, they meant their own uh, Pharisaical laws, like, hey, this guy's not doing the things that we want him to do. He's worshiping a different God. And uh, it's fascinating because verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, so he's about to speak, like, make a defense, because, you know, Paul's Roman too. Uh, Galileo said to, Jew, said to the Jews, if it is a matter of wrong, <clears throat> this matter, this, this means like legal issue or vicious crime, oh, oh, Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put you, put, put, uh, it is reasonable for me to put up with you there, this is some like condescending here. Like, look, if it's not a legal thing, like something that actually is my jurisdiction, he's not doing any crimes. If he did those things, yes, I would be more sympathetic. It's funny, verse 15. But if there were any questions about words and names and your own law, look after yourself. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. So this is this person. He's at least very honest. Like, look, this is, I, this, this is way beyond my um, pay grade. Uh, I don't care about your Jewish laws. You have to figure it out yourself. It's as if the government's saying, "Hey, I don't want to do church discipline here." That's kind of that would be the equivalent here, uh, and then that's what happens. He he goes and tells Paul, and tells these Jews to let Paul go. He's not doing anything that actually is offensive, uh, and yeah, he's not going to involve himself in these matters. Verse sixteen: He drove them away from the judgment seat, and they all look, and they all took hold of uh, Sophonis, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of those things, any of these things. So Sophonis, he's actually very unknown. Uh, Sosthenes, it's, it's unknown who he is because he kind of just appears here. But it, it seems to imply that he was some sort of Jewish leader that's supposed to represent the Jews to uh, Gallio. It's, it wasn't said earlier, but that seems to be an indication why they just beat him up because it's like, hey, you didn't do your job. You failed to get Paul uh, killed, and that's why Gallio was like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. He's just being punished for. Um, uh, you know, for for not doing what the Jews want. Of course, interestingly enough, right earlier earlier he said that you know is, is it a vicious crime? So he's basically like turning a blind eye to these Jews that are committing a vicious crime right in front of him. He's like, okay, this is dumb. I'm out of here. These these Jewish people are constantly bringing up issues that really does not pertain to the general masses. So he just lets this happen. Um, Verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea of Syria. And with him were uh, Priscilla and Quilla and Sergia. He had cut his hair, for he was keeping a vow. Now, I'm not quite sure why he had a vow, but this is kind of like a Nazarite vow. For a certain time, he um, kept 
his vow. It doesn't say when he started this vow. I believe he started it when, um, you know, when, when right after when God gave him the vision to not give up, to not quit. And I think that's where he started you know, growing out his hair and doing all the Nazarite vow. So he did it for at least a, a year and a half or so. And when he, it was time for him to leave, he was like, okay, I'm done. I don't need this anymore. Um, and it's just a completion of the vow. And that's why he cut his hair. Um, but it, it seemed to be that maybe he did it because he wanted to show that he's devoted to the Lord, much like what the Nazareth vows was. He, he, it's, a, it's a particular time in the life of a believer that's supposed to do complete devotion to him, to the Lord. And that's what I think what Paul was doing here. And now that he's done with this particular task and the mission that he's part of here in Corinth, he's he decided to cut his hair. Verse 19, they came to Ephesus and he left them there. Uh, them meaning, um, you know, uh, uh, meaning, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So again, this is no different. He just keeps going from one synagogue to another, witnessing to people uh, to try to win them to the faith. Verse 21, they asked him to stay for a longer time. He did not consent, but taking leave to, of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He said so, to, he said so from Ephesus. So this is, uh, again, this is just amazing uh, record of Paul's faithfulness, how Although he was discouraged by the world around him, and even how all of this came about, because it was a split, the Lord opened and closed doors for him. He went, and, and that's really the beginning of the second, um, the second uh, minis- missionary journey. And this, le- this is really much the end of that, starting from the from verse uh, chapter sixteen or beginning of uh, the end of chapter fifteen, all the way to here. This is like several year account of of how the Lord has providentially used difficult times for the, so the churches can be built, so that uh, uh, so part of the New Testament can be written. And the reason why we have all this is to see the goodness of God and that we can trust Him. We do not need to worry about uh, what the world, what the future holds, but that our future is in the hand of our Lord. And I trust that this lesson will prevail for us too, that we don't need to be afraid, that we need to hold fast, and even if anyone decides to harm us and even cast our bodies into death, that our physical death is just a temporary thing because for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. I hope that this is uh, helpful for you and I, and I hope that this will encourage you to be bold in your evangelism with those around you. Thanks for listening. Take care and have a great day.